1: What's up on a Monday? I am Brian Scott Rippey. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippey Rights podcast. We have a basketball check-in with former Andy Kennedy staffer Bracken Ray on deck for you today. Ole Miss lost 80-71 to to Auburn over the weekend in a game they led by double digits at one point uh, to arguably the best team in the country. Auburn didn't end, up, didn't end up ranked number one, as I record this on a Monday morning in the polls, but... Um, pretty close to it. They're certainly a Final Four contender. What went right for Ole Miss in that game? What slipped away? And as mundane as this season has been with the Joiner injury and then Austin Crowley went out in that game, I think that was an oversight on my part during the conversation with Bracken uh, when talking about Crowley's minutes. I know he got hurt. I just didn't register with me while talking to Bracken. But if he's out, that's going to be another body down for a team that already lacks significant depth, which I think is what was mainly on display on Saturday night. But anyway – Without all that being true, I tried to project this as more of like a big picture forward spinning thing. What's missing uh, with regard to this program, some of Kermit's missed evaluations, and what needs to change long term if they're going to right the ship, not even just this season, but the Kermit Davis tenure at Ole Miss. And then we bounced around the SEC a little bit, talk about what surprises us, A&M, Buzz Williams, you Buzz know, Williams, who's been disappointment, Tennessee, Arkansas, what to make of Mississippi State, and a lot of other stuff. So good conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, About an hour or so with Bracken and Ray, but uh, before we get to that, I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval and Advanced Modeling Mechanism that has propelled Skybox (laughs) to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Hope you're on Skybox record fifty-six unit weekend the other week, uh, two weekends ago, or I guess that was last weekend, uh, because those are the reason you signed up they're crushing it in college basketball right now nfl playoffs uh, got cranked up over the weekend you need to check out skybox right now they're the most consistent way to profit you're not going to make money long term off your own dumb brain none of us do it's okay to admit it skybox for the professionals and it's based on math and predictability and algorithms they are going to consistently lead you to profit you need to go have check out their website and they will have a picks package that fits your price range whether it's month-long Season-long, sports-centric. I'd recommend just getting the year-long pass for all sports. It probably paid for itself in one weekend last weekend, but it'll certainly pay for itself and then some over the course of a year. You need to check them out. They're going to have a Picks package to fit your price range. Use the promo code rippe R-I-P-P-E-E, and you get 20% off. That lets them know we sent you. So there's some free money, but please make sure you're using the promo code. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com, the world's best gambling handicapping website. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Soon to be in Gluckstadt if you listen to the Friday Mailback Friday show. How about that? Opening up a second location. Greg going global here. The, the uh, Southern Bob Baffert just spe- spreading his wings across the globe. But if you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, uh, you get discounted meats to Greg's day job, which is not raising horses. It is selling awesome meats. RippyRides.substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me three to five times a week and discounted meats right now. It's a 16 ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage roll into the store, show Greg proof of subscription. He'll hook you up. Then go find your own favorites, all kinds of great seafood, lane train, special bacon, wrap filet. Love the filet burgers. The ribeye sausage is always a great way to go. All kinds of delicious stuff at LB's. Greg wants to make your grilling experience. Great. Check him out LB's university Avenue. All right. Here is Bracken Ray on the state of the Old Miss basketball program and a look around the southeastern conference all right we now welcome on former andy andy kennedy staffer bracken ray here to do a hoops check-in uh Ole miss loses 80 to 71 to auburn last night in a game they led by double digits we'll hit some of that some big picture stuff and uh really kind of bounce around the sec a little bit what's up man you were uh you were absent last sunday you were doing things for charity is that right what were you up to last weekend
2: no, we had a, uh, in town here in Nashville, we had our week long, like sales kickoff. So they fly in, you know, salespeople all across the country and it's like a four day event, you know, some, some training, some drinking, it's, it's, it's normally a pretty fun deal, but it normally, you know, takes up most of the week. So we got that done with on Thursday or Friday and now we're just trying to, uh, avoid getting snowed in for the second weekend in a row.
1: It's uh it was cold out here in Dallas. There's some snow flurries yesterday. No real serious threat of snow. I don't think anyone's welcoming snow out here after the whole uh power and ice debacle last year. Um, where like oh, yeah. North Texas basically just became a third world country for like three days. And then the ironic part about that is two days later we are drinking beer in an indoor baseball stadium watching all this play baseball. Yep. But I, it has, was actually,
2: I actually flew into Dallas, into the snor- snowstorm for that last year.
1: Credit, I've always, I think I said that on the podcast at the time last year. Credit to whoever had the, with COVID and everything else, had the kind of persistence and perseverance to be like, no, we're going to delay it one day and get this done. Because about four days outside of that tournament, it looked like there was zero shot they should play that. But it turned hey, out
2: – Hey, oh, I mean, hey, Flow Sports had to make their advertisement money, right?
1: God, that was – uh. Had, I, that was one of those – I couldn't watch the Monday game because I'd that works. So I signed up for Flow Sports, and they took just 25 free dollars from me because it took me three months to figure out how to cancel that subscription, which is just criminal, honestly. That was awful.
2: <laughs> That's all right.
1: Uh, all right, so let's get into this a little bit. Ole Miss loses 80-71 to 71 last night. Couldn't hold a double-digit lead in the second half. I will. Uh, I'll let you take the lead on this one because I was watching – but I was at a, uh, a bar and then it got turned off at halftime and I wasn't going to fight the guy to turn it back on. So I was just like, all right, whatever, I'll play catch up. What, uh, what happened last night?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, first off to start off, I mean, Auburn it, it, coming out here in the next couple of days is going to be, you know, one, two, maybe three in the country right now. They are super balanced, um, got a lot of different things they can do. Jabari Smith may end up being the number one pick in the draft. Obviously, we all know about Walker Kessler um, from UNC. So, they, they, Bruce has done a really good job with this team because he's got a lot of um, newcomers on this team, and he's, he's found a way to work for it to work. We've talked about in you know, the past two years, Musselman's done a really good job with that. Um, Cal, over the past 10 or 15 years with his one-and-dones, having newcomers and being able to make that um, you know, work quickly is really impressive, and, you know, Auburn right now looks like the best team in the SEC because of consistency. They don't, they don't really have off nights. Um, you know, for Ole Miss right now, it got off to a good start. It looks like attendance was pretty good last night, a pretty good environment, uh, kind of building off the previous, uh, building off the previous week. Um, and so, you know, for Ole Miss, I think that what, what happened last night, when we talk about Kessler, we talk about Jabari Smith, But I think the guy that kind of changed the momentum and was a pain in the ass for Ole Miss last night was Katie uh, Katie Johnson, who's a transfer from Georgia. He had some timely steals and also had some dagger buckets as well that really kind of turned things around. And for Ole Miss, you know, they get up early. And when you're playing this high level of a team, Auburn, who could obviously be like a Final Four team this year, when you get popped in the mouth, you got to be able to respond to the adversity, and you can't let you know a six-point swing turn into a 12-point swing. And I think that once Auburn kind of went on this run, like I said, Katie Johnson did some small things that really turned things around from a momentum standpoint. Ole Miss just fell apart.
1: Yeah, I think you're right in that sense as well. And Ole Miss was playing really well, and he was sitting there – you're sitting there thinking, like, good God, like Bruce Pearl in the pavilion, just not a great mix – it seemed like they kept, like, I didn't want to say Kessler didn't make an impact in the first half because he did end up, like, I think his splits were even 10 and 10 points was but it seemed like they kept him off the glass. Actually, I know they kept him off the glass in the first half, but uh, didn't in the second half because he ends up with eight of his 10 rebounds in the second half. I thought they did a nice job with him in the first 10 minutes. Like, he, had, it was an unimpactful. It felt like 10 points, but even though he scored the same amount in the second half, you could feel his presence a lot more. And he seemed like he just kind of took over down low late in that game.
2: Hey, did you say that for Jabari?
1: No, I was talking about uh, uh Walker Kessler, but I guess it kind oh, of
2: yeah. for him as well. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I agree there. Um, you know one thing that's that's interesting is like on the from the front court, both this week and last weekend, I thought that that was kind of a big key for Ole Miss. Like, what are Brakefield and Nas gonna be able to do? against these guys at Auburn, but also uh, the previous week, DJ Jeffries and Garrison Brooks. And at times they held their own, and offensively, um, you know, our guys as well gave us something. But Walker Kessler, I mean, the the thing with him is against Brooks, he goes nine from 11 for the field, right? So they they ran some stuff from him. and so he ended up having a double double 20 and 10. And so he was able to get going. I thought that we did an okay job on Jabari Smith, though. I mean, they're so balanced at Auburn, that he doesn't have to just completely take over games. Um, but I thought that, you know, limiting him to like 15 with the, the lack of depth that Ole Miss has. Because there were times in that game where I kind of forgot about him a little bit, right? Like he right. he he would go a period where he wasn't doing a whole lot. So you're right, you know, in the second half it's it's those three Kessler, Jabari, and KD that kind of really, really turned it around. Um, and then for Ole Miss, where they fell apart, I think, was depth. You're having to play guys big minutes. You can't get in foul trouble. That hurts you sometimes with the way you defend as well. Um, but you know. To, to the front port, uh, court piece, I think we out rebounded them. Let's see, out rebounded them by five. I wouldn't have bet on that if you told me we were gonna, you know, lose by ten. So that was kind of crazy as well.
1: Yeah, Auburn played more guys, and, like, they got more guys. They had six guys play at least 29 minutes, and then, like, they got decent minutes from Williams in Cambridge where it felt like like Austin Crowley gets five minutes last night, Sammy Hunter gets seven, and those feel like survival minutes. I mean, you're talking yeah. 37 for Ruffin, 35 for Brooks, 38 for Morrell. I mean, Auburn didn't <laughs> have a guy play over 32, and I know it doesn't sound like a big difference, but, like, when you're having to play, in Ole Miss's case – three of your five starters basically the whole game. I mean, you're talking less than a media timeout's rest for both Ruffin and Morrell, and Brooks only gets five minutes. That little, like, having eight minutes off a game or ten minutes off a game versus, like, two or three makes a difference from the depth standpoint. Like, when you think – I feel like when you say depth, people think, oh, guys, they can play. It's actually just kind of like having seven or eight guys you can live with on the floor for extended stretches to actually give the starters breaks instead of just surviving in some senses, is it not?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's right. It's somebody that's just not going to be a liability on either side of the floor for you, that you need to get in there and get minutes. But like you said, six guys at 25 minutes or more, and then AC and Sammy Hunter with like five and seven minutes each. I really think the the turning point of that game, like we said from a personnel standpoint, Katie Johnson, but from number two, I mean, or for number two, it's the amount of minutes that six guys had to play You know, in that game. Uh, I think that wore on our group a little bit last night.
1: Because when you talk about Ole Miss, with with them losing Robert Allen and them losing yep. Jarkel Joyner, you're really only six deep because you can't tell me he trusts Crowley and you can't tell me he trusts Sammy Hunter. And I know Crowley's played more. I think he played more in the A&M game. I'll have to go back and look that up. But when you're talking about depth, like Auburn's a legitimate, what they played, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine guys last night. But you could say they're a legitimate eight and a half deep. Where Ole Miss played eight guys, but you're talking – you're five starters in Fagan, and then it's kind of like it, it gets dicey when you have to play anyone else any extended period of
2: time. And so the funny part here is the exact, like the exact opposite happened last week. So Ole Miss, you know, gets up on State and was able to kind of keep a big lead. And if you look at State's roster, I mean, they, their bench may, may be le- – they may have less depth than we do from a bench standpoint. They played nine guys total, but, you know, they played a few of those guys really low minutes. And so the going into that game, front court was the big thing that we that we kind of looked at, but they have no depth at all. And so Ole Miss was able to keep that lead at home because, hey, not only do we not have depth, but they didn't either. So it kind of became a battle of your your starting five plus one and then keeping this lead up because Morrell was obviously super hot and Ruffin did a really good job creating that game as well.
1: And that's a good transition into what went right in the first half versus what went wrong in the second half. And they did this lends itself to a big picture discussion about what this team is offensively, both without Joyner and with Joyner. Because I have, I'll get to that in a second. I wrote about that some in the newsletter last week. But you look at their last two home games where they run state out of the gym in the first half. I think they put up a 50 burger in the first half. Well, what happened? Yeah. Matthew Morrell lost his mind. What well, he made his first 10 shot attempts. He's like a perfect, <laughs> like seven for seven in the first half. Well what happened last night you had you got a boost from Ty Fagan what he goes i had this up a second of course i just yeah. lose it but i think he was like 5 for 5 for 6 in the first half 2 for 2 from beyond the uh makes both of his three point shots he gives you 10 points or, excuse me no he gives you um I'm all over the place with this damn box score. He gives you 12 points. And then Nas Brooks had a pretty nice impact. Mm-hmm. So You get a boost from those guys, but they're not dynamic enough scores to sustain that for a whole game. You mentioned the uh, – I forget who you were referencing when talking about forgetting he was on the floor. Fagan does a lot of nice stuff in stretches but then you'll have like a seven minute pocket where you forget he's on the floor. And if you're, you know, a, a dynamic score in the sec, that's going to kind of carry an offense. You never really forget that guy's on the floor and he's just not that.
2: Yeah. Well, I think another thing with like looking at Fagan too, is not only does he have seven minute stretches, he has a, he, he'll have a game where yeah. he is kind of non-existent as well. And so, you know, when you look at – we've talked a lot about the Fagan, Luis Rodriguez, you know, who should play more, could they play at the same time, all that stuff. And, you know, it's always come down to Luis is the better uh, defender. But this year I think not only – um Like, I think he's taken a step back almost offensively as well. Like, not only is it he hasn't taken a step forward, I think he's taken a step back a little bit this year. He's going to continue playing big minutes because Kermit likes the way that he can defend. He can defend multiple positions as well. But, um, you know, Ty Fagan, although inconsistent and sporadic, can give you something offensively that they don't get at that three spot a lot.
1: He would be, in a perfect world, the third guy to rough in, in a healthy joiner, right? Like, that could – like, his – what he's doing, and, you know, he'll have a bad game and disappear or whatever, but that's kind of what you like a what you would expect from a number three, right? Like, in a perfect world, if this team's healthy and functioning properly, like, what he's giving is a perfect number three, but shit with them – like, you know, with joiner out at times, he's kind of the best option, which is kind of a scary proposition, if we're being completely honest. Um yeah. As it pertains to Luis, though, you talk about him taking a step back offensively. That's something I had written down that I wanted to get to. His point total post the Sanford game, which they lost, where he gets 13, 0, 1, 7, and 5. And he went two games without making a field goal. He didn't make a field goal in the Tennessee loss or the state win. And then he goes 3-10 at Texas A&M, 2-4 last night. It's not like – it was funny. We were talking about him in the preseason about, like, what can you expect from him offensively? And, like, do you view it as a bonus to whatever he's going to give you defensively? But, truthful, like truthfully, he's such a – he's a good athlete. Like, I didn't think he would be this bad. What are you seeing from him, and what do you think the regression is stemming from?
2: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, this roster, from a personnel standpoint, it's not what – they want it to be, but it probably is more balanced than it's been in some of the years that he's been there. So there's times where he's, you know, had the ability because there's maybe only one dude, one or two guys that are going to do it. Like you said, though, another stat, per 40 minutes, he is 10th on the team in points per 40 minutes. Um, Now, this is a little skewed because John McBride is eight Um, on here. John McBride per per 40 minutes averaging 13.3 points a game. But, um, yeah, he's 10th on the team right now. For him, we talked about just like you were talking about from a depth standpoint for seven, eight, and nine guys for Ole Miss. You need somebody that's just not a liability. And I think for Luis, because of the way that Kermit uh, trusts him defensively, you just need him to be serviceable offensively, right? And so the thing that's been tough is he's not giving you a whole lot right now. He, he's getting to the point of being offensively you know, a, a liability as well confidence is one thing that seems to have taken a step back for him um this year as well. So it'll be interesting to see going forward if there's even more of a minutes disruption or if Kermit kind of sticks with the hey he can go in there and guard and get us 25 minutes or so a game.
1: Yeah and then like kind of as a as a whole you mentioned him being an offensive liability that quite frankly that's not something this team can afford. And I guess it's all sort of a moot point in some senses because, you know, you lose your leading scorer on a team that already su- like sucked offensively. It's going to be tough. Trend to the second half when it did go wrong for Ole Miss, right? So you could kind of see senses of it in the final minute of the first half. Like Auburn really kind of dominated the final 22 minutes of this game, 21 and a half minutes, wherever you want to go, to where they cut it to double digits before halftime. I wrote about this after the a and game. Where this uh, team's struggles are encapsulated offensively are the long stretch in the second half where they go without a field goal and it just buries them because they defend so hard, but they're like, like, they're a good defensive team. But unless you're really elite, going these five, seven minute stretches without a field goal is hard for any team to withstand, particularly this one. And last night, they're up six after you had Morrell free throws at the 14 16 mark, but you had a Brooks layup. That the 14:52, you didn't have another field goal until the Morrell three, at the 9:46 marks. That's over five minutes without a field goal, and you've lost the lead by that point. And then, unfortunately, it goes even longer after that. The next field goal after the Morel three pointer came on a breakfield dunk with 3:35 left. So you win an 11-minute stretch with two field goals. Now that's somewhat skewed. You got to the line three times in between that, but. That's tough for any th- team to withstand, and it, it happened the other night. I don't know if you noticed. Mm-hmm. This, I wrote about this on Wednesday, but in the A and M game, they were down four at halftime. Right, they A and M comes out, goes up nine. Ole Miss cuts it to two on a seven to nothing run. But all three of those baskets came off turnovers. It was a dunk, a layup, and a three in transition off two steals, and I forgot what the other turnover was. Then yep. they score again for six minutes, and the game was over. AM extended it out to. You know, twelve points, and it was over by my count. With four minutes remaining in that A and M game, four twenty something, they had had six points offensively, not generated by turnovers. Like, I, I guess I threw a bunch of numbers at you. Like, yeah. color in the lines. How how brutal is that offensively?
2: Yeah, it is. And one thing I see there, like from a timing standpoint, is that at spurts they get really tight in situations. So. A lot of college coaches think that the, the, you know, two stretches of time that are super important is the last four minutes of the first half, the first four minutes of the second, right? How you finish that first half, how you start the second. And I think this happened in the Sanford game as well, but Ole Miss was up about 13 going into the final media, ends halftime um, up six, they played super tight at that end and we're turning the ball over a little bit. I mean, Katie Johnson had, I think he had two steals within like 13 seconds of each other. And then to start the second half off, you're up six, you go into the next media timeout, um, the, the under 16 media timeout, you know, up two points. So they get really, really tight in those situations and, I mean, it's, it's just a point in the game, so it's not like you are trying to strategically do things super different. But this team does seem to get tighter going into that last stretch of the first half, and it, is, it changes the momentum. Uh, because if you go into halftime, you know, up 12 or 13 points, it's a lot different than six points. Now you're playing super tight that first uh, four minutes going into the media as well, and we saw that last night.
1: And then when it brings in the depth conversation, too, because, yeah. like, so I didn't watch Kermit's post-game presser yet after last night, but the one – they didn't post the one after A&M, but I got a pretty good Cliff's Notes version just from various people because he had some interesting comments calling, like, the team soft or whatever, and yeah. he didn't think they play with any effort and energy, which I was surprised a bit that he said that because, of course, this is probably just why I'm some asshole with the podcast, but I wrote down while I was watching that A&M game As bad as they are offensively, it's actually impressive, like the way the like the effort with which they guard repeatedly, even when they're in terrible offensive stretches. And look, they're not perfect defensively. A and M in that game kind of cut them up around the basket. I think they had forty two paint points. They got penetration and really kind of seemed like they screwed Ole Miss up pretty badly with getting easy baskets around the rim. But it wasn't like an effort issue. And, you know, between that and the depth aspect of it, it's got to be pretty demoralizing having to guard that often with that slim margin for error, you know, 40, you know, 35 minutes into a game. If they're 30 minutes into a game, you got seven minutes to go, a two point game, you know, you're slowly losing the lead. You hadn't scored much. Like it has to be pretty hard to defend at that level when you don't have depth.
2: Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, they still are guarding statistically pretty well for the season and You know, what I do respect about this team, you go and lose some pretty egregious non-conference games and then lose, you know, a guy that really helps you on the defensive boards and is kind of a glue guy with Robert Allen. You hear different things about how long Jarkel is going to be out, but obviously that's that's your guy right there as well. But a lot of teams would kind of fold. Um, And this team, I haven't looked at Ken Palm lately, but probably projected to win maybe like six and a half SEC games. Um, So I have a lot of respect for the way they are guarding and defending. uh, To your point, there are two things that I think Kermit would like to see them better at on the defensive end of the floor. They get pretty aggressive in passing lanes at times and have a really hard time defending cuts. That's kind of the way that some of these teams are beating them. Second thing, not great in pick and roll situations either um, at times, but, but all in all, like if you look at it at a high level for the whole season, Uh, they've been they've been pretty good defensively and I think that like in the Tennessee game for example we've talked about it multiple times on this podcast like defense travels right and so them being able to do that I don't think you're going to see this team get blown out a lot Um, but their inability to score is tough Ruffin being here is is huge for this group he's been, been able to create um he, his per 40 minutes are the best on the team right now. Now, his issue is in conference play, from an efficiency standpoint, his field goal percentage and efficiency is, is really poor. So that's something that they gotta, they got to work on ironing out as well, especially because of how valuable possessions are uh, with how they play. But he's been able to help them, and I think he's helped Morrell a lot. His ability to create has helped Morrell – Morrell's averaging 18 a game, you know, the last four games or so. So, offensively, there are some, you know, at least optimistic, hopeful spots as well.
1: It's an interesting point you bring up because I wanted to go there as well. I doubt many people are just going to look back at the uh, 2021-2022 Ole Miss Rebels and think of some great what-if. But if there is a what-if with this team, is it not getting – a healthy Joiner and a healthy Roughen on the floor together for an extended period of time, because like you had Roughen go out with the wrist injury and then he comes back and Joiner starts struggling with the back issue. They may have overlapped. It may have happened. They were on the floor for a little bit, but for not any not any sort of extended period of time to get any chemistry to where we could actually see what that looks like offensively. Yeah. You mentioned his ability to create to help Murrell. Well. Morell's been pretty inconsistent with his shot and just his ability to score. It just kind of is what it is at this point. He's had some good moments, but he's also had some bad ones. Like, if they were healthy together, like, how much do you think that would have helped Joyner? Because it seems like what Ruffin does is what Joiner struggled to do, and that's get to the rim and get by folks. But Ruffin's spot – excuse me, but Joyner's, you know, catch-and-shoot numbers were pretty good before he went down I just wonder how much better this would look offensively if you could give Ruffin the ball let Joyner play off the ball and like less of that penetration responsibility was on Joyner's shoulders I just wonder what that would have looked like
2: yeah I think it's a great point and it's kind of what we thought the the makeup I think you know this summer was hey let's let Ruffin run the show at point point. And then, like you and I have talked about for a, a while now, Kerm kind of likes running his offense through the wings at times as well. So, being able to put Jarquel there, I think he's a little bit more comfortable there. Um, they don't have something that, that hurt them early in the season. It's still, it's still hurting them now. But they don't have many solid ball handlers as well. So, Jarquel's kind of had to do it, you know, in the past. Now you've got rough and healthy. Those are really the only two guys that I trust at all with taking the ball up the floor. I think that's another component of it. If you look on the negative side, though, um, you know, those two in there together, I think defensively could could give you some some problems at times with some matchups and stuff like that. Um, But, yeah, I mean, obviously if both of them were healthy, I think they would be in the game together a lot.
1: Yeah, it's a good point you bring up particularly at the last portion of that where he's t- talking about Kermit preferring to run offense off the wings. It's where he saw the best version of Bree and Tyree. And, look, Terrence Davis was never really going to play on the ball, but he was a damn good wing under Kermit Davis for that one year. It's So we're I, I, I don't really have much else on the Auburn game. I didn't expect Ole Miss to beat Auburn. It was a valiant effort, but they ran out of gas, which is kind of what you yep. would expect this version of this team to do. So – Looking at it a little big picture, we'll get a little bit larger in a second. What, what's it like inside a building right now? Because this team has faced adversity, right? You lose Joyner. I don't know when they're getting him back. If it continues to – this is just me guessing. If it continues to slide and they continue to struggle, bringing him back the second or third week of February doesn't seem to make a ton of sense. So, I think any contribution you get from him is considered a bonus this year. And on top of that, you lose Robert Allen. And I didn't, Kermit pointed this out the other day. Those are both your team captains. And you're in someone that's been inside a building, inside a program. Like there is value to the captain thing as much as people want to roll their eyes about it, particularly when you see it with NFL quarterbacks. Like the, the guy that's like, hey, well, the quarterback's a team captain. Well, your argument yeah. is probably pretty shitty because everyone is a team captain, but there's value there. What do you think it's like inside that building right now? Because it just doesn't seem like they can catch a break.
2: Yeah, uh, great point. Um, You know, something that I think is interesting, I I don't think this group, um, because I've talked to some people on the staff, they like this group from a people standpoint. I don't think they have had a lot of locker room issues. I think this is a pretty good group of guys from what I've heard consistently. And And, Not to interrupt you, but
1: to add to that, because people say that all the time, in college basketball in particular, that is not always the case.
2: And another point, there's a difference between hearing it in a press conference and hearing it in private one-on-one conversations, because you'll get a little bit more of the transparency there. And I can't say that was always the case when I worked for the group. What I'll tell you that's really interesting about Robert Allen and Jarkel, that probably doesn't get talked about enough. Like in my four years at Ole Miss, we didn't really have like a vocal leader, so to speak, um, and I think both of those guys are. I hear really good things about Jarquel, and I, I think that both of them, even being injured, probably are still helping in that situation as well. I think under you know back in 07, you know to 010, like Chris Warren was kind of a lead by actions guy, and so that was you know you had examples like that. But this group's going to be able to keep the locker room together, and the way that they're defending from an effort standpoint and how locked in they are tells me that they're still balled in. You know, if you get on a five or six game losing streak, I mean, it it gets kind of tough and you probably have players that are, you know, getting calls and stuff like that because people want to play for teams that win. But right now, you know, I haven't seen anything that shows you don't see people with bad body language on this team. You know, you don't see a ton of that. So I haven't seen anything yet that says, all right, this is about to just completely fall apart.
1: And even if healthy, like if you want to put a positive spin on this, and look, I'm not asking you to sit here and be like, what's their path to the tournament? I think we've really kind of crossed that threshold unless they go on some sort of positive run. But right. even with them healthy, if you told me they started at Tennessee, home against State, at A&M, home against Auburn, knowing what I know about all four of those teams, they're probably going to be one and three anyway, maybe two and two if you pull yep. out one of those road wins, but it's a tough start. And now you get Missouri at home, state on the road, and then back-to-back home games, three-in-a-row home games. You get Florida, Arkansas, and Kansas State. So there's yep. – now, look, February is a bear, and, like, it probably won't matter. But you mentioned in terms of, like, kind of keeping things together, there's a path to right the ship toward respectability here, I think. Um of course, you're going to have to take care of business with the home games and, you know, see if you can pull one out against State, who's very bipolar but just got a, uh, just got a nice win yesterday over Alabama. It, but sticking with the big picture, though, because this is yeah. something you and I have texted about a couple of times. This team lacks scoring. It wasn't a great offensive product even with Joyner was out. And we already covered the what if, if he gets rough in and Joiner on the floor. Does it make any difference or is the conversation different? We'll never know. But it wasn't great when Joyner was on the floor. And it's yep. become apparent that since Kermit Davis has taken over, he hasn't recruited a scorer here you know, other, other than AK. Like, but both AK signees got him to the tournament. And then ever since Bree and Tyree left, this team's – it's been an offensive struggle the previous two seasons or the last two seasons. This is a dumb question, but I imagine he's aware of that. Like, do you think they, they know that this has to get fixed? And, like, how do you think it gets fixed?
2: Yeah, I, I think I think they are um, aware. I do think you know from a, a, a criticism standpoint, they not signing uh, a perimeter shooter in this transfer portal um, the past year I think is biting them right now. There are a few guys on the team, you know, we can see it right now because the bench is six and then plus two with AC and Sammy Hunter. All right, you're really you're really at eight players you're playing. You know, some of these guys on the bench that haven't played much this year at all, a lot of people going into the year kind of thought they were low to mid-major players. What if you didn't have one of those high school signees and had, you know, a a mid-major transfer that could shoot in the mid to high 30% from the three-point line, right? Like, that could change this team. Um, Two more points on that. So, one thing a lot of people have been critical of is kind of this motion continuation weave offense that Kermit has and I in my opinion I think we run it too much but something that's was real interesting to me when looking at the numbers today on uncontested jump shots so you know you don't have somebody guarding you open jump shots for the year this team is shooting 33 percent On uncontested jump shots
1: you saw it against a&m they went five of 22 from three point range and you're thinking well if they went five of 22 why is almost half of their shot attempt three point shots they were open shots they were good shots
2: right right so it's i mean (laughs) that that's unbelievable um yeah that's an unbelievable number i don't know um I mean, I don't know where that ranks. I don't know where that ranks in the country. I I, I would think it's it, it's pretty poor there. Um,
1: I'm not a like, good betting man. That's got to be bottom uh, 20. And you're talking 300-something yeah. teams?
2: Yeah, 300-something teams. I mean, like, you should be in the mid-40s or above, I would think, um, at least. That's so, why you're on the, this
1: pod for digging up numbers like that. That is a staggering number. But So, like, the, so, the so, so I'll give bad. you
2: one. I'll give yeah, you one ahead. here. So. Um, so South Dakota State, I've actually kept up with them a decent bit. Um, they, they've got a new coach then when we played them and got beat uh, in 17, 18. They're number one in the country, 53% unguarded, 53% compared to 33%, right? And so what, what this comes down to is, hey, in my opinion, I think we run the, this dribble-weave handoff thing too much. It worked when you had – Brian and TD all that stuff and they ran some quick hitter stuff for them too as well but at the end of the day like this comes it all comes down to players right if Bruce ran the same stuff and he had the same amount of looks unguarded with his group they're probably shooting in the mid-40s so it all comes down to players and to kind of segue that point I'll ask you this and see what you think Sure. So there's probably um, you know the league is Jay Billis said last night this is the best league in the country. I, I think you could definitely make an argument for that. I think on the very high end this this the league could get eight teams into the tournament. How many guys on Ulmus's roster would would start for one of the top eight teams in the SEC?
1: It's a terrific question and I'm trying I'll just go through it. It, real quick like I'm um, let's see SEC basketball standing it's a terrific question and to go back while I'm looking this up to your point about the number you dug up like the the average Joe watching who's maybe not like thinking about what their percentages are on uncontested shots it's watching that A&M game because I, I sat down yeah. and I watched I was by myself in my house watched that over and over again and they had because they were moving it around. They had whatever they were doing. They got the ball to the middle of the floor, kind of around the free throw line, free throw line extended. And it created things particularly like it seemed like corner threes. I don't know what action they're running. That's your job, not mine. But like they were getting open shots within the flow of the offense. They just weren't making them. And at a certain point, you have to make them like the number you're talking about shows up in the five of 22 from three against AM. and Thirty something percent from the field, right? I mean, you watch that game; yeah. they didn't have a like. They weren't struggling to get good shots. Like, feel free to disagree. They just literally yeah. couldn't find someone to put the pill in the cylinder.
2: Yeah, no it, doubt.
1: It's it's tough. So let's do let's do this exercise. I think it's an interesting one. SEC basketball standings: Auburn's leading the conference five and I oh. I don't think anyone is starting. For old-
2: and, le- and let's and let's phrase it this way too: If like the coach would. Take this person – take somebody on Ole Miss's roster over this person or over a person on the team. What I'm saying is, like, not, hey, are they better, but, like, if I could trade right now, I would. Right. So, for example, like, somebody on – yeah, there's a guy on state who's averaging 11 a game. All right, are you going to trade, you know, whoever for that? Auburn's out. Auburn's out. I think Kentucky's out. A&M? Yeah, A&M is, is one that I could think you can make the case for yeah, they. I think they would. They would take Joiner for I sure. Think,
1: I think they would too. Mississippi State is tied for fourth in the conference. Okay.
2: Yeah, so Kentucky, we're saying no one, right?
1: Yes, Kentucky okay. Kentucky's out. State.
2: So state. They wouldn't trade. You know, Jeffries, Brooks, and uh, Iverson. They wouldn't. You know, they wouldn't touch those with anybody on Ole Miss's roster. I'm trying um, to maybe, 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 maybe Jarkeel. Okay, so that's yeah, Jarkeel there.
1: LSU's an yeah. absolutely not, unless I'm missing something.
2: Yeah, LSU's a no. So that's five Vanderbilt. Uh you're gonna pick yeah, a lead on I, this one. I watched them. I, I I'll I'll be honest. I'll be honest too. I haven't watched them a ton this year. I'm not a <laughs> I'm not a huge Jerry Stackhouse fan. Um I, they would they would take they would take Jarkel. Um Scottie Pippen's really good, but they'd probably take a few they'd probably take one or two guys off our roster because Scotty's kind of running the show over there. Um Scotty Pippen Jr. And so I think they'd probably take one or two guys. Arkansas would take Jarrell, and maybe Ruffin. Tennessee, uh, they could use some offense.
1: Okay, so that's four of the eight. But then yeah. you get to Alabama, which is not right now. But that's yeah. a no. So you're talking like four of the yeah. nine. That's less
2: than half the teams taking any it, of the players. It, all this and stuff. really, it's just Jarrell. Yeah, it you really know what is. saying. So, I get to that to say, like, I think Ole Miss has a a decent starter. Like, their starting five is not just atrocious or anything like that. I think depth is the issue. But at the end of the day, like we're saying, these SEC teams, both out of high school and the transfer portals, are recruiting at a super high clip right now. And this is where we're seeing Ole Miss, who, you know, right now is projected as a Tuesday night team in the tournament. It's all, about, it's all about players. I'll be honest, you know, Rick Barnes, they're 11-5. and five. Um, I don't think they run good stuff offensively. Um, I, I, I've got a lot of – living in Nashville, you know, there are a lot of diehard Tennessee people, and some of them that I talk to kind of know what they're talking about too. And I don't think Barnes runs good stuff as well. But he's 11-5 and five and probably, you know, in the 40s or so in the net because he has players. So, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, that's, that's what all of this comes down to.
1: Absolutely. It's a great point. And I'm glad we did that exercise, but that is what it comes down to because the original question I asked you was like, what do they need to do to recruit scoring? And it gets the conversation of players. And look, I like Jarkel. He seems like a good dude, a good locker room guy, but like, you know, your guys' staff passed on him for, you know, reasons. And he was a good player out at Bakersfield, but like you're taking a kid from that program and taking him into the SEC and he's done fine, but asking him to be like a Bree and Tyree or something like that is tough to do. And when you're a program like Ole Miss, the player evaluation is tough because you're not going to win out on, you know, a Johnny – I don't even want to go down some of that ones. AK lost and ended up recruiting Team Europe instead. I did a story on him uh, on that a very long time ago for the student newspaper. But I'll lay you up here. Your boy AK, that was a very underrated part of his his coaching job at Ole Miss. And I think people grew to expect it. And that when the on-court stuff got stale, like I don't think he got enough credit for the dynamic bucket getters and just players he got in a place where it's hard to get players.
2: Yeah, you know, and I, I, we've said this on off-season podcasts in the past. The thing that has surprised me the most about Kermit is that he's probably been a better recruiter than evaluator. What I mean by that is you're going up against other P5 schools and winning rather than evaluating, right? Like Moody didn't have P5 offers. Right. Chris Warren really didn't have P5 offers. But I'll tell you this, I was talking probably four or five years ago to a guy, um, I'll keep his name anonymous, but he's a ESPN basket. he's a household name in ESPN basketball world. And we kind of went through this exercise because I was working Jay Billis' Skills Academy on who's the best evaluator in each conference. And his his Conference USA guy was Kermit, and his SEC guy was AK. And so the, it's been shocking to me that we have Miss because – the reason Kermit was so successful in his last, you know, we'll call it five to seven years at middle was being able to eval. He had better starting lineups than us at times, um, you know, at middle compared to to, um, when we were at Ole Miss. And so, you know, we got our ass out coached at times too, but he also had three or four dudes that could go make it happen that are all making serious money over in Europe right now. So I think it has been a little, you know, surprising to see that, not only not not only not be a strength of his, but kind of be a weakness, um, you know, three and a half years into his tenure. Is
1: there any, we've talked about this before, is there anything to the fact that just when you get into a league like this, you have to have dynamic guards? Because it seemed like he made a lot of his hay in Conference USA with front court guys, and I know that's kind of how he preferred to recruit a team and kind of shape a roster, but does, is there any credence to the fact that when you come into a league like this, you have to have dynamic guards that can score, and like, it doesn't seem like he's adjusted to that yet. He's tried. Obviously he gets joiner and, you know, you can, whatever the high school path he's taken, but is there any credence to that theory?
2: Uh, 100%. I think it's a great point. Um, you know, when you look at this roster, you really eight, eight or so of the guys on the roster are really forwards. Right. You know, if you kind of think about it now, the positives of it is I think it helps him defensively at times. Uh, you're a little longer, you're athletic at spots, and then you're able to run the 1-3-1 one, one as well. But this is a guards league. You have to be able to have guys that can go beat, beat people off the dribble and make stuff happen. And this group right now has one person who can do that. You know, that's roughing, and, and he's not – you know, Kell going into the injury was statistically the guy scoring the most points and all that he can't – he's not great at beating people off the dribble. So, I think, yeah, dynamic guards, you have to have them in this league. There's probably some happy medium that they haven't been able to recruit to yet of having some length and size and be still being able to be good offensively but also being able to have guys that can create and um, make stuff happen as well on the offensive side of the floor.
1: Last thing before we take a look at some SEC stuff, if – so you talked about ball handling and then lacking ball handlers, which just all falls under the same umbrella with what we're talking about. Right. That really reared its ugly head in the Tennessee game. Did it not? There were points where in that Tennessee game where they were, you know, slowly bleeding out the lead. I think Fagan had gotten injured or someone had gotten hurt. I can't remember who it was, but like my dad texted me during the game. It's like, what are, he's like what are we doing offensively and I'm sitting there like I don't think they know what they're doing because they don't have anyone to handle the basketball right you didn't have joiner they lost someone else I couldn't remember who it was but you're talking about roughing and then just kind of a bunch of misfits like it was almost didn't blame them because the ball handling was so scarce in that game like you couldn't do much offensively and so you know what you got was kind of a disjointed mess but last thing I was going to get to if this is going to become, without Joyner, like a respectable offensive product, what would that look like? Like, if, if there's room for improvement, how would you do it?
2: Well, here, here's what's got to happen. Um, I think Nas Brooks at times in the, in the post-ISO game, he's, he's been pretty solid at times, especially when he has undersized bigs on him. got to continue – got to play through him some, right? This is not Romello White. You can't completely run your offense inside out through him. You got it, but you got to go to that option some. Second, they've got to get buckets in transition. Um, from an efficiency standpoint, they've been really good in transition this year. But at a micro view, Morel in transition is huge, and here's why: if you look at his game, when he gets going and gets scoring and making, you know, a few baskets in a row, it's because he gets some easy buckets or some buckets around the rim. Like I think there's a mental switch that happens with him um when that happens so morell offensively in transition getting going is going to be huge 18 points over the last four games and then lastly you, you got to keep playing rough and big minutes he's done a good job at creating and sharing the ball i'm not sure what he's averaging for the year from an assist standpoint maybe five or six but you got to get him to a place where he can continue to do that continue to create but from a shot making standpoint be a little bit more efficient as well if they want to be serviceable um you know offensively I think that that's what it takes and at this point it kind of seems like if they could get to seven eight or more like seven or eight wins I mean that would almost be you know a decent job going forward for this team as well anything over you know seven or eight um so those are the three things that I think that they've got to do more of and then you're gonna have your ebbs and flows of like a top and having 17 one night and zero the next. Um, but those are the three things that I think could get them to a serviceable place offensively.
1: Yep, and then just transitioning forward, like I won't play the game of like how hot is Kermit's seat, but now that you lose joiner, you I don't want to call it an excuse. You have a reason to point to to like look, this year got screwed up, like, but this is gonna have to look different next season, is it not, in terms of how they play offensively? It just to me it has to. Because if it continues to look similar, it's almost the like. It's almost like he's still trying to jam a square peg into a round hole. Like I, this is way big picture, but don't you think they'll try to be more guard oriented next year to some degree?
2: I think that from a person from a personnel standpoint, they're gonna be more aggressive, trying to go after guards in the portal. That that would just be my thought. Um, I, I think that that's what they're gonna have to do to adapt and adjust you know, on the, the topic of the seat being hot, like the thing that makes me nervous is I don't think Ole Miss basketball can be in the business of like every three or four years having a new coach. Um, I think it'll very quickly kind of put you as a consistent Tuesday night team in the tournament. Um, but also knowing, you know, that, that I don't know what we're in the net right now, but being in, you know, below hundreds or something like that, I, I know that that's, that frustrates fans. And I think the offensive piece, not just scoring, but I think at times it it, uh, for fans, the frustrating piece is not just the wins and loss, not just the scoring, but it's not super entertaining to watch. I think that's the third component that's kind of frustrating people right now that I'm hearing about.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Because that affects attendance. And, you know, when you have an embattled coach that, you know, you can't blame the asbestos in the tad pad anymore. Like, the kind of, to me, like the proverbial straw that always comes up when a coach in any sport is kind of on the hot seat, the the straw that's often breaks the camel's back or sways it one way or another is people not showing up to games and attendance dropping that I mean. You know, from an athletic standpoint, that's costing them money in some way. So, I, yeah. think, I think you're right there. Like, it, it, it's not enjoyable to watch. AK had some teams that weren't very good, but they never struggled to score the basketball, and they were entertaining, even though sometimes they were frustrating. But it's a great point. It's going to be interesting to see. You know, I still think there's reasons to watch over the second half of the season. What rough Ruffin turn into and kind of, like, see what it could look like next year. And, again, it's a tough start to the SEC schedule. uh, and kind of balances out just a little bit. But this league's a bear, and that's what we're about to get to here before I let you get out of here. We're now five games in. Yeah, most teams have played five games. I'm sure there's some COVID cancellations in there, and some are at four, but whatever. What surprised you the most?
2: Well, I mean, I don't – it never surprises me because he's a good coach. But – Buzz. Buzz right now, like, the thing that has surprised me is, like, they're not super talented in my opinion he is not recruited nationally at a level that i thought he would you know three years into this thing but they're 15 and two a lot of people like two weeks ago kind of thought they were like a nit host team who knows what's going to happen there um they gotta they definitely have to win some games in the conference maybe go eight and ten or or better in the conference um my opinion right now i mean we thought this was going to be like a five or six team race um for uh the SEC. And now it's kind of seeming like Auburn, Kentucky LSU. Um now the thing is I didn't say Bama there, and Bama kind of under Oates has struggled the first half of the season a little bit comparatively to the back half. They play better the back half of the season, so that could definitely turn around. But some of these battles between Auburn, Kentucky, and LSU this year, when they play each other, are going to be a lot of fun. And it kind of looks like it's shaping up to be a little bit more of a three-team race um, for the SEC, with another group of five or six that are really damn good as well.
1: Auburn looks like a Final Four team to me. With, I mean, they're they're
2: really, really, really good. Like that. Yeah.
1: I mean, I know they. Got, Bruce already went to a Final Four, but on paper, is this not his best team?
2: From a talent standpoint, I mean, you definitely can make that argument. The thing that I like about them a lot going into postseason, they're so balanced. They can have guys that have off nights and somebody else kind of pick them up. Um, and so he, the job he's done there is phenomenal. I've gone back and forth over the past decade or so of, hey, do I like Bruce? Do I not like Bruce? Like his annex kind of pissed me off. But, you know, they're, they're a fun team to watch. Um, and so – yeah, I mean they're they're super talented. And then you saw what Kentucky did this weekend as well. And then LSU lost to Arkansas. Um, and their non conference schedule wasn't great. So I, I don't know they 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 could they could lose four or five conference games this year for sure, but um, they're super talented, you know, as well. So those three teams, I can't wait to get to watch them play each other because it's gonna be a lot of fun.
1: Maybe I'm wrong, but a team – talk about just getting off the bus and you see them, like, take the court. A team that I would just absolutely dread facing is LSU. Why didn't they get more uh, preseason respect? They have five dudes that all just look like absolute kind of wing-forward freaks and they can defend almost all five positions. They just look athletic as hell to me. What led to them not getting a little bit more respect in the preseason?
2: Well, for them, you know, they lost those three guys last year that, you know, Trendon, Cam, and then Javante Smart. And those guys were like, I don't know, 60% of their offensive productivity. So that happens and people are like, okay, they're going to take a step back. Then they had a transfer from Illinois who's pretty solid player named Adam uh, Miller. And I think in October, two weeks before, yeah, two weeks before the season started, um, you know ACL or some sort of leg injury that got him out for the year. So now you've got a team that, hey, lost their three best players and one of their best transfers is out. And so a lot of people were like, eh, tournament bubble team. But you know they've done a really good job. I totally get the the Will Wade hate. I, I get it. It's it's frustrating. I will say this though, I, he doesn't get out coached much. And so kind of the the I think it's a lazy narrative that people were like. Obviously, you know, he, he pays the, the paid player deal and all that. But I don't think he's a bad coach as well. So I think some people nationally, media-wise, get frustrated with him and kind of underestimate that aspect that he can kind of hold his own at times. Is he John Wooden? No. But he, he's going to get a decent bit out of his teams as well. And so as you see, they're, what, 15-2 and two or so, so far. Um, we're seeing that play out right now.
1: From like the Twitter sphere, public perception standpoint, he's almost riding his his because you know they signed a they got a commitment from another top kid that's a junior in the uh, next year's class, yeah. and like public perception standpoint, he's almost doing a one eighty to where people are one so incredulous that he's still there because of, I think the initial shock factor of that whole FBI investigation that never really amounted to much that everyone thought was going to permanently alter the sport. And I'll throw my hand up in there as well. When I heard FBI wiretaps in the, you know, the Federal Bureau of Investigation investigating college basketball, I figured things wouldn't be the same. But he's almost done a 180 from a public perception standpoint because the NCA's approval rating, not that it was ever high, is as publicly low as it's ever been. Like the NCA will get no sympathy from anyone. And I feel like people are starting to just be like, actually, I kind of like this guy because he does not give a shit and he's just kind of sticking his middle fingers in the air and still landing kids and still winning.
2: Yeah, I don't know if it's that far yet, but I do think it's – like another piece of this too, though, is like the NIL. Like do we – are we in our minds justifying pay-per-play that's happened in the past because now it's like this legal loophole?
1: I think you're right.
2: You not know, that like that's part of it too.
1: Cared like from a consumer standpoint, everyone knew what. I mean, anyone that watches this, the sport and keeps up with it, knew what it was. We just don't like it when they turn the lights on and the cockroaches scatter.
2: Right, or when it's not happening to your team. That is true. <laughs> you know, like that's the that's the big thing. It's almost like this a jealousy, for example. So I don't think I don't think people. See, Will Wade is likable, but I will agree with you is maybe he's less hateable than he has been in the past. And he's immature and he's got antics and acts like an asshole a lot. But my point is, I think that people nationally think that he's just, you know, he didn't play, he didn't play high school basketball. He was a manager at FRA, actually. Here in Nashville. Well, that's where my father
1: it. attended school. That's uh, right. Glad to remind uh, run, remind me of that.
2: Yeah. So he, you know, they're like this young guy and he worked for shot. He was an assistant for Shaka at like 29 and people were like, what is going on? So it's like, well, all he's doing is paying to get players and that's it. He can hold his own from a coaching standpoint. He's not in the elite crop, but I do think that's something that people underestimate with him, uh, with his teams.
1: Um, I ca- I'll say it. I kind of like him. I think his shit-eating grin is hilarious. Like, and you know, he's somewhat personable. He took the photo with the dudes dressed as FBI agents. I get some of it's probably a stick and not genuine, but I actually think it's funny. I'll say it. I kind of like him. Maybe that's because you described him as an asshole that has antics and sometimes acts immature. Maybe that's my scouting report.
2: Maybe we just <laughs> eye to eye on that. But anyway, last couple of things. Is Alabama good? What's wrong with them? Yeah, I think that they – For Alabama, like I said earlier, they take a little bit, they take a little while to get going. Um, They haven't just found their click yet. They can't figure out how to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And then I've told you this before, I don't think their forwards are super talented, right? So kind of uh, they've got Oates recruits guards like crazy. He, he, him and um, he's got a, he brought an assistant with them from Buffalo, Brian Hodgson, I believe is his name. They do a really good job of recruiting guards, but I, don't think, I think his forwards are kind of a liability at times, and so that'll be something to keep an eye on going forward.
1: Tennessee and Arkansas, two teams that I don't really understand. Like, you thought Tennessee was good coming into conference play. I'd heard some good things about Arkansas but didn't know what to make of them, and I still feel the exact same way. What do you think about both of them?
2: Yeah, for Tennessee, like, I'm, I'm one of the biggest Rick Barnes guys you'll ever meet. I think he's a phenomenal coach the offense that he's run this year just has not made sense to me it's dated he's got too many weapons um, to not be scoring at a higher clip so especially in the half court they just don't run great stuff uh, that gets guys open you know for muzzleman like all right the the two things is that I battle in my head did we overrate the persona on his team plus his departures last year or his strength of being able to have 10, 11 new guys on a team together and get them going. Is he having trouble with that this year? Because that's a, that's a huge thing. I mean, I, I've talked to AK about it before, you know, AK had five or six guys who either went down a league or stayed the same league, meaning, you know, going from SEC down, that transferred into him this year. And it's like, how do you keep the locker room happy? These are guys that, Um, like Jamal Johnson started at Auburn last year. Jamal Johnson doesn't start at UAB this year. How do you keep these guys happy? How do you keep the locker room together for people who have actually done this at the college level against men in high major schools? For Muslim, it's kind of the same deal. Like these guys were the dude at their previous school. How do you put the pieces of the puzzle together and keep people happy? Is that the issue or did we overrate, you know, the the persona that he has on his team?
1: Well said what to make a state they have talent but like am I wrong in saying that Ben Howland is so antiquated offensively it's holding the rest of the team back I don't understand you have that many athletic guys that much talent and the offense looks so poor as it it looked as poor as it does I don't understand it is that the common thread in their bipolarness
2: yeah it it is but what's funny is um when we talked last, I don't know, a week or two ago, this by far was the best job he had done from a half court offensive standpoint. And so now, you know, you're playing real dudes, your schedule's a little bit harder and the SEC's kind of, kind of knocking him in the mouth a little bit as well, but they're, um, it, for Mississippi state right now in the half court, they're actually shooting like 45% in the half court right now, which is, which is not terrible. They're top 17% in the country in points per possession in the half court. Um, so like offensively, it's going to be interesting in conference play to keep an eye on how good they did offensively, both in half court and transition, non-con versus in the in conference as well, because I've told you a million times when we, from 14 to 18, going up against Howland, or I guess he probably started in 15, but their, their offense was so elementary and it was very easy to defend. So it'll be interesting to see if that continues in, in conference play as well.
1: He is Bracken Ray, former Andy Kennedy staffer, um, regular on the pod during basketball season. I appreciate the time, dude. Go enjoy some yeah. of playoff football and we'll check in next week.
2: Absolutely. Just got a text that it, uh, the fight in Coach Yo's won by 15. So a little passing of the guard in the women's basketball egg bowl, it looks like. There you go. They're pretty good. We'll hit some of them next week, particularly. I, uh, I, I, kinda,
1: I Coach Yeo is an interesting uh, figure to me, but uh, we'll hit some of that next week, too, if, depending, particularly if this losing streak keeps coming. But anyway, well, I'll you soon, man. I appreciate it.
2: All right. Have a good one,
1: buddy. All right. That's our show. Appreciate you guys making it to the end and making this podcast a part of your day. We'll be back on Wednesday. I'm not positive what yet, but we'll have something good cooked up for you. Got a couple of irons in the fire in that regard. But I appreciate you guys listening and your feedback as always on the podcast. And we will talk to you again on Wednesday.